This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. What's more important, your teacher or the other students in your class? Scholars have struggled to answer that question for a half century or more, and now we have a new, innovative, experimental study that uh, looks at this question once again in a context where teachers have been randomly assigned to classrooms. Using the data that's available, uh, Jane Cooley-Fuworth, an economist at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, finds that it's the interaction between teachers and fellow students that is the key phenomenon to understand. So Jane, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Well, so the standard literature on teacher effectiveness looks at teacher experience or their training, their background characteristics. Most studies find that these things don't make much difference. But you and your colleagues begin with a different measure of teacher effectiveness, their actual classroom practices. So let's begin with that. You you separate classroom practices into two dimensions, and one you call student-centered practices. Mm -hmm. So can you sort of explain what that concept means and how you measured it? Yes, yes, so student-centered practices um, are, are the types of practices that actually encourage discussion with, um, where teachers encourage discussion in the classroom or um, engage students in their own learning practices um, or uh, and, and they seem to be largely uh, mixed with um, challenging practices, so challenging students to think for themselves. Um, so we're thinking about the two together, both more challenging practices and student-centered practices. And the way they're measured in the data we use is teachers are videotaped, and then trained raters, many of them who are previous teachers, come in and um, measure what they perceive as the teacher doing on these different scales. And so the actual scale we're using is um, a popular teacher evaluation rubric called the Framework for Teaching, which school districts um, are increasingly adopting as a way to evaluate who their good teachers are. And we're taking a, a section of that rubric, which has been created by um, um, education um, practitioners, and saying this, this part of that is um, challenger student-centered practices. So you actually have, what, seven people observe yes. the teacher at one time or another or on a video, and they each will rate the teacher, and then you combine all of these ratings together, and then you come up with students. This teacher is really good at drawing students out, challenging them, getting them to discuss things. And then you have another measure, and that one is called classroom management. So now, yes. what's classroom management? Yes, and so the classroom management practices are, are things like how you organize the day, how you um, organize the environment to create good student behaviors. Um, and these are also part of the framework for teaching rubric. Uh, and. Uh, 
just are ways that teachers manage manage the behavior. So a, a yeah. teacher could be very good at having an orderly classroom mm -hmm. and, and still do more direct instruction and have less right. of this interaction thing. Absolutely. And you could have a teacher who does a lot of interaction, and, but really it's a mess out there, right? Right. The students it, are misbehaving <laughs> and they don't know what they're supposed to be doing at a given point in time. So these could be two entirely separate things. Right. They don't, they're, they're not necessarily two different ways of talking about the same thing. These are two separate, distinct phenomena. Right, right. Right. So now, what's really interesting about your study is you don't find that in general, when you look at all students, that either one of these things shows much of an impact. If you don't, if you just looked at everything in a simple little analysis, mm -hmm. you wouldn't see much effect of either one of these things. Is that correct? Right, right. So our initial, and we're looking at math test scores just to be clear, but initially we don't see any effect of these things, which we were really surprised about. We thought that there would be an overall effect of, of, of these practices on student test scores. So why did you look at math scores? We, we chose math scores because in past research has just shown they're more sensitive to teacher effectiveness or teacher practices, so we thought it was a natural place to start. I um, guess the kids learn how to read in many different contexts at yes. home and on the subway or wherever. And, yes. But math you learn in school or you don't learn it at all. And yes. so if you're really looking at anything about the school, look for it in math because that's probably where you'll find the biggest mm -hmm. effect. Yeah. That's, that's definitely my So. Um, so now the good thing about your study is that the teachers are randomly assigned to the right. classroom. Right. Um, now, but the students aren't. So now, does that create any problems for you? Yeah, so it's a really interesting setting. So um, because teachers are randomly assigned to the classroom, we can say pretty um, incontrovertibly what is the effect of the teaching practice because they're randomly assigned to the classroom. But the way that the, the experiment was designed is that we tried, the, the people who um, originally created the, the experiment decided to create comparable sets of students with which to um, randomly assign teachers. So the hope was that teachers wouldn't care so much which classroom they were assigned to, but at the same time, principals created these classrooms and there wasn't any guarantee of random assignments of students to these classrooms. But what we're able to show is that um, you're, we can still get at, so what we really want to get at is how the effect of teaching practice varies by classroom composition. And we can control for a classroom composition, and even if it isn't random, still get at how teaching practice varies by classroom composition. So you don't think that the teachers adapt their teaching to the particular type of students they have. Yes, yes, so so that's a really important question and one that we're saving for another paper because we, we think that there probably is a lot of teacher adaptation. Uh, but instead, in this paper, we decided to use primarily focus on a prior measure of the teaching practice. You mean what they had done the previous year? Right, so that we're not seeing that part uh, where teachers are adapting. And the reason we did this is that we were concerned that if we focused on the contemporaneous practice, so what they're actually doing that year in the classroom, that that would confound, so make it more difficult to see what the interaction effect was. So is it really an effect of the teaching practice, or is it something about the classroom composition? And so that's really led us to focus on the so teaching practice So you're sort of saying, year. well, the previous year, we're gonna take that, that's sort of gonna give us what this teacher's general tendency is. Right. Right. And then we're going to use that to, as our measure of 
right. what this teacher does in this particular classroom, even though you know the teacher's going to adapt with it. Exactly, exactly. And we can look at the correlation between two, the two to get at a stable component, which we also think about as well. Oh, so you, you uh, refine that a bit yes. by looking at the correlation between the two. Yes. Well, so here's the big thing. What you find that the effectiveness of each of these practices depends upon certain characteristics of the students. Mm -hmm. And one characteristic of the student is just what their level of achievement was before they entered the classroom. Is, is, that, is that right? right? Right, so one characteristic is um, just the level of achievement, and so we're able to see are there heterogeneous effects by students' initial achievement before they entered the classroom. And largely, we don't find, we find small effects there, but um, they completely go away when we think about classroom composition effects. So, and, and so if the peer group that a student is, has in the classroom is performing at a higher level or enters mm -hmm. in at a higher level, then how well, if, if the classroom is well managed, the, kid, the child will learn a lot more. Absolutely. So, so what we are finding a, a really we have a really robust result is that um, these, if you're in a classroom with average higher average initial achievement, then um, classroom management skills are much more productive. Or you benefit more from these higher um, students with better preparation if um, the teacher is using these classroom. Well, management no, that's skills. absolutely the opposite of what I would have expected. Really? Because I would have thought, okay, so you're in a classroom, the other kids are bright, uh, the teacher may not be that great, but I'm going to learn from those kids anyhow. But if right. I'm in a classroom and the other kids aren't that good and the teacher isn't so effective, or even if the, yeah, if the teacher is going to be really important, then I really need to have. Right. So how do you, so I'm saying this is really counterintuitive. This right. is against right. what I would have expected. So right. and when, how, how do you explain this? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and one we've thought a lot about. Um, and one way that, that we've thought about it is that, that, and the education literature shows this, is that there's challenges to engaging students who are low lower achieving and, and students who are higher achieving. And the challenges are different. So engaging a higher achieving student might be, mean giving more um, challenging material, whereas engaging a lower achieving student uh, might, might be more basic, um, you know, making the material match their level. Um, and so one way we've thought about it is, is and the literature has shown, is that because this, this um, challenges for engaging students is ac at, across all levels, um, there could be still this potential for a return to classroom management being higher in these higher achieving classrooms because that's when um, the kids who will really benefit from these higher achieving peers. So now this student-centered approach that we talked mm -hmm. about, the student-centered approach which challenges the students um, is that that's more effective when you're you've got classmates who are higher performing? It, or so, is it not so, so? Is that not it's, the it's, case? It's more effective, but then but that's completely explained by classroom management practices. So what we really find for the challenge student-centered practices is that they're most effective when um, classrooms are more homogeneous in terms of initial preparation of the students. Okay, so that's your other dimension, yes. is the heterogeneity of the classroom, yes. whether it's high performing or lower performing. If there's a heterogeneous classroom, then those discussion classes are not necessarily so great. Yes, yes. So why is that? 
So my, it's a really good question. My my impression, I was, I found, I found that result quite intuitive as a as a teacher that often it can be quite difficult when students are coming in with a really broad range of backgrounds to be able to include all of them in a discussion. And so, if you um, target the discussion at the top students, and the worst students are left behind, and if you target it in the middle, the top students might get bored. And so uh, what we're finding is exactly follows that intuition that if you have a more homogeneous classroom, that's when you can really benefit from engaging the students. In well, that discussion. I do find intuitive. I can, I can really see that that makes a lot of sense. I find that, in fact, in my own classroom experiences when I have a diverse classroom, and at Harvard you can get a, a diverse classroom, believe it or not, uh, that if I have discussions they sometimes leave half the class completely. Either they're mad at me for being so simple-minded or they're being annoyed with me because I'm only talking to the high-performing students. Yes. So it's hard to find the balance between that. So, so that one makes sense to me. Uh, but um, that's only an argument Then we should have tracking. Now, tracking is not very popular in American education. No. You see a lot of criticism. Are you making the case for tracking? I wouldn't say that we're making the case for tracking. What we're hoping to do is find policies, that practices that teachers can use that will be more effective in the environments they're given. So I think so often the literature focuses on is a tracked environment better than an environment that's not tracked? And I think that's a really important question. But at the same time, we think that this is also an important question that if you choose to track students, can you, can you teach them in such a way that they actually benefit more from being tracked? So I, I think this is an example where if we want to, use, want to use these student-centered practices, that a tracked environment is certainly the, the better, our results indicate it, that that might be the better context for using these um, student-centered practices. But it doesn't rule out that we couldn't use other practices in a mixed environment that would also be effective. So one of the things that um, comes up all the time is uh, KIPP schools. Yes. Um, you know, KIPP has the drill and kill approach. You, you do rhymes and you sing along and you chant and uh, you, you learn the basics and very repetitive and phonics and flashcards and all that kind of stuff that was the approach of the 19th century or even part of the 20th century, up until the time I went to school even, uh, no longer very popular. So um, isn't your study actually suggesting maybe you got to have a completely different approach when you're dealing with students who come from weak backgrounds and they don't have those concepts under their belt in the way of somebody from a more advantaged background. I think that's yes. true, and I, I, would, I would love to um, develop more nuanced measures of teaching practice to figure out what exactly those approaches are that would help uh, students coming from these more disadvantaged backgrounds, because I think it's really important for policy to understand that. So you haven't found any evidence that the discussion class is necessarily an inappropriate approach for students from low-income backgrounds as long as the classroom is not heterogeneous. Right, exactly. But it's hard to avoid that heterogeneity right. when you've got kids from less advantaged backgrounds because some of them are gonna be high-performing kids nonetheless. Right, exactly. So I've been speaking with Jane Cooley-Fruith at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Thank you, Jane. 
Thank you so much. For joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me at every Monday at noon when the latest Education Exchange podcast is released on the Education Next website.